0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Science Lab. It's the thing I hated most in high school. And that includes puberty, pimples, getting dumped by girlfriends, you know, the whole high school experience... Science Lab was the worst. Once a month, you would have Science Lab. It was a two hour long science lesson. Usually you had to do experiments, which sounds like fun, but they never really work. And there was a ton of paperwork and homework associated with Science Lab. Not to mention, I wasn't a big fan of my lab partner. But during Science Lab, there was a five minute intermission. This was my saving grace. During that five minutes, I would sprint down as fast as I could to the cafeteria. As soon as the register opened up, I was ready. Eight sugar cookies, please. I'd hand over my money and then I would run as fast as I could across the entire school so I wouldn't be late for the second half of Science Lab. I'd arrive to the door, pocket full of cookies, crumbs kind of falling out of my mouth because of course I had to eat one on the way. And then me and my seven cookies, would make it through the second half of science lab. I had to pace myself. You can do the math, seven cookies, that's roughly a cookie and a nibble every 10 minutes to get you through the second half of the worst part of high school. It was during one of these sprints back from the cafeteria, a pocket full of cookies, that I first heard that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. I actually laughed. That was my first reaction. Uh, To be fair, I'm one of those people who laughs when I'm nervous. I'm the guy who laughs at a funeral. It's gotten me in trouble before. But when my friend Brendan told me what had happened, it seemed surreal. And in that moment, I laughed about it. I didn't understand the implication of what had happened. And our teacher kind of kept it that way. She made an announcement as we shuffled back in for the second half of science lab. A plane has hit one of the World Trade Center towers. Many people have died. She took a deep breath, and she said, Open your textbooks to page 53. Do you remember what you were doing on September 11th, 2001? If you're older than 20 years old, then you probably do. Elaine was sitting in her college dorm on the couch.
2: As everything was going well, I was getting through college just fine. My older brother was doing the same. And so it was a
1: day like any other day.
2: I watched 9-11 happen from the comfort and security of my sorority house, and where I was like, okay, I need to join the army. I need to serve my country. I need some purpose, direction, and motivation.
1: that event would change the rest of her life and lead her to where she is today as an alpaca farmer. How did she go from college to the Middle East to farming alpacas? We're going to find out in her story in today's episode of Homesteady. Cozy up. It's time for another episode of Homesteady. The world that we live in is a crazy place, but you and me... We can each make it a little better. We can live a more sustainable life. We can become more self-sufficient. We can get more connected with the planet around us. And we can do all of this together. So everybody, cozy up. It's time for another episode of Homesteading.
2: I think I'm Yeah,
1: here. you're here. <laughs> hey, Elaine. Hi. How are you? This is Elaine from Old Homestead Alpacas in Walla Walla, Washington. She's an old friend of homesteadies. A couple years back, Accountant Mike and I hosted a homesteading business class where we took aspiring homestead entrepreneurs and kind of coached them through the early days of getting their business off the ground. Elaine was one of the first to sign up for the course. Elaine is a no-nonsense woman. After she signed up for the course, a day or two went by. She didn't hear anything from me, and she emailed me. She said, I have not received any information on this meeting. I'm starting to doubt the validity of this class. Is this even happening? Why haven't I heard anything? I knew right away we were gonna be friends. It's been two years since we did that homesteading business class. And since then, Elaine has been killing it on her homestead in Walla Walla, Washington. In addition to fiber products from her alpacas, She's making a lot of money giving people that on-farm experience, agro-tourism. This year, she's shooting to make ten, dollars maybe $11,000 from her homestead. Would you like to make $11,000 from your homestead? I would. <laughs> if Elaine had a class, I'd be signing up to find out how she did it. But fortunately, she's going to share that with us today. Elaine did not grow up in Walla Walla, Washington. She actually grew up in the Midwest. The reason she's out there now, well, her boyfriend was to blame.
2: Yeah, Mike was already stationed in Washington. So Mike and I were a relatively young couple at that point, just boyfriend and girlfriend, nothing big. Um, But I kind of saw the future, so I kind of what brought us to Washington State. And we we just stayed. If you've ever been into the Seattle-Tacoma area, especially as Cummins, coming from the Midwest where it's all flat and then you get to wake up every day and see a volcano, (laughs) you uh, very soon uh, decide that you are not going to leave.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Elaine actually met Mike before she was in the Army. He even played a part in getting her to join.
2: I was kind of going through a whole lot of things my senior year. Uh, My mother had been diagnosed with cancer. I had a, just a ton of student loans, and I was considering joining the service. And then I watched 9/11 happen from the comfort and security of my story house, and that had an impact on me. Um, at the particular time I was in my life, you know, I was kind of at a major crossroads, and that was just kind of the final thing where I was like, okay, I need to join the army. I need to serve my country. I need some purpose, direction, and motivation. But definitely seeing it happen, and then being connected to somebody who was in the service, um, definitely that was a that was a, a defining moment in my life. That's for sure.
1: Did uh, did this and this all happen at the same time? Your your mom was battling cancer.
2: Yes, we found out my mom had it my junior year, so she had had it probably six months or so we found out she had cancer and that was kind of like a oh man and then it was a okay we can get through this you know and then it was oh it's stage four and there's only four stages i went off to fort lee virginia and about midway through fort the training at Fort Lee, I got a Red Cross message that said I needed to come home because my mother was, her passing was imminent. So I got home. I was home for about a week and a half. She passed away. I helped my dad and brother kind of do the things you do after that happens. Um, And then I went back to Fort Lee for a little bit more training to finish my um, requirements there. And then I left Fort Lee, Virginia and went to Fort Lewis, Tacoma.
1: So sorry about your mom. That's awful.
2: Well, thank you. Um, It was actually, she passed away 15 years ago, just a couple weeks ago. so. (laughs) So it wasn't even a full year from her passing that I was deployed. So it was, uh, that was quite a year for me. I went from being a college co-ed, living the dream, to Army boot camp, to losing my mother, to moving across the country, and then having a little um, jaunt overseas.
1: A little jaunt overseas. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to put it. um...
2: My unit, I was with the 864th engineer uh, combat heavy battalion so bulldozers and graders and scrapers and the day that the u.s invaded uh my unit actually pushed what was their border which was a big heap of dirt a berm um with the dozers they pushed
1: were you the one like behind the wheel of the dozers
2: oh no i wish (laughs)
1: that's (laughs) like the fun part
2: (laughs) Uh, no I was in the back of a truck somewhere uh, (laughs) with a whole bunch of the troops. Uh, No, I was a a unit supply specialist, so I handled all the rations, the beans and the bullets. Um, No, I didn't get to drive one of those big cat D9 dozers, but uh, I did get to have my picture taken on one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to say that it gave me quite a bit of perspective. I was born and raised in Indiana, and you know outside of chicago i it was definitely suburban and somewhat urban i thought i had a lot of street smarts and so forth um but it's a whole different world out there and so being there as a you know a 22 year old kid who'd been through quite a bit it was just it put a lot of my own you know woe is me into perspective through some stuff but man some you know some of the situations i saw myself in and some of the people i saw and it was like wow they would probably relish to have some of what i consider uh troubles you know um just it really kind of opens your eyes to the fragility of life and how extreme environments people can not only survive in them, but they can thrive in them, even within all the the craziness and the scary. There's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of growth that you can have if you're kind of open and receptive to it. So it shaped my perspective on a lot of things. I guess that's the best way I can put it, because there's definitely days in eastern Washington where it is god-awful hot and I'm frustrated and things aren't working. And then I remember, wow, I could be in long pants, long sleeves with... 35, 45 pounds of gear on and not necessarily safe and unending 120 degrees, drinking hot water, you know, so like I, I, I have moments now where I reflect often on those experiences that I like to think have made me a stronger person, a more compassionate person and a more conscientious person that have very much served me well here on the homestead, that's for sure.
1: Elaine thinks that the time she spent as a soldier made her a stronger person, one who could put hardship In perspective, this would be important for Elaine as she left the service and went on to start a family and then faced one of the biggest challenges of her life.
2: Yeah, I remember growing up, I always thought I was going to have like a bundle of kids. Um, But, you know, I think that was probably one of the first things I thought about after I got back from uh, being deployed. We got married. You know, I decided we were going to stay in, you know, Washington. It was very clear to me like, I'm like, okay, I think that's what I want to do. I want to be a mom. We tried for seven years. We went through pretty much every treatment option available in those seven years. It was one of those dreams that, you know, when you kind of just feel it in your gut, you're willing to kind of do whatever it took, you know, I don't, I didn't want to get to, I didn't want to walk away and then four or five years later go, what if I would have done this? Mm. What if I would have done that? You know, so it was just a deep seated dream that I wasn't willing to let go. Those two, first two years were just, you know, trying. It was years three through seven that were like Mm. intensive medical intervention and so it was a lot of okay we're gonna try this little medication and now we're gonna try this one and then we'll try this little procedure and then this and then it was like okay we're gonna do the full meal deal and we did that for about two years we kept at it because it was a it was a deep-seated dream I think you know and you just kind of want to make sure that you or at least I did and so did Mike you know that we turned over every leaf because I didn't want to get down the road and go oh, I should have tried this you know and after a certain point you know You can't try anymore, Um, so. We were in a four bedroom two and a half bath, nearly 3,000 square foot home.
1: A home with plenty of space for kids to run around.
2: The two of us. And without
1: kids there, it just felt empty.
2: And I was already kind of at a pretty decent stage of depression (laughs) at the end there. The ability to kind of move through that while in that physical situation, that was my identity. You know, I was like, so okay, now that we're not going to do that, what are we going to do? And it's like, well, I need to I need to move from this situation physically because it's it's just reminding me of everything I don't have and won't ever have in that regard, and so it was definitely a it had to be a kind of a clean break.
1: Mike and Elaine needed a clean break from suburbia. They decided it was time to find. A house in the country. Maybe a fixer-upper. Something that would keep them busy. A project. And they found it. When we come back from this quick break, we're going to learn how Elaine's project house turned into an alpaca farm. One that she's now making $10,000 a year from. Hey guys, just a quick break from the show. Next time you're going to go shopping on Amazon. Before you go to Amazon, go to amsteady.com. Dot .com that's am like amazon and steady like homesteady.com you'll instantly be forwarded to amazon's website but in that millisecond that you're forwarded there amazon will log the fact that we sent you there and we will receive an affiliate bonus should you buy something on amazon it costs you nothing extra not a penny But a small amount of what you spend will be given to us, so we can continue to produce the show that you love at no extra cost to you. Just head on over to amsteady.com, buy whatever you were planning on buying anyway, and we will make a little bit of money, which helps us keep the show going. Every little penny helps. So next time you go shopping on Amazon, remember, am, like Amazon, steady, like homesteady.com. When Elaine thinks of the one word to describe the homestead that she and Mike found when searching for their country home, the word she picks is
2: undervalued,
1: undervalued. The people selling the property, even other people looking to buy this, didn't see the potential that Mike and Elaine could so clearly see.
2: When we bought the place, it was I thought just for the land alone and for the barn, the big beautiful barn which I fell in love with, it was completely undervalued. But the thing was, it was country fabulous. It's an old farmhouse, your quintessential two-story white, just with a you know a half wraparound porch. Just I mean it it's very stately. It just kind of jumps out at you.
1: It had beautiful curb appeal, but when you walked through the doors, let's just say it scared people away. It
2: had dropped ceilings and fluorescent lights. It was oh just yes, nasty.
1: super cheesy. Yeah, and <laughs> it
2: got awful carpet and every flat, linear surface had some real old, really unattractive wallpaper on it. You know, we were looking for something to do. Uh, A change and we could see it just by walking in the door Um, what a what a gem it is Um, because and we were willing to do the work because we needed something to do so we could we could tell those drop ceilings they can come down because they were like drop ceilings from like we needed we needed a project and let me tell you this was a project
1: Mike and Elaine had no intention of starting a farm or a homestead, but the property did already have some infrastructure on it.
2: So the, the gal we bought it from, she had like in some sort of an equine business going here. So it has complete perimeter fencing and two solid, maybe three solid pastures. I think it was three. Yeah.
1: And out in those pastures was a little surprise.
2: Part of the deal when we bought the place, the gal told us two specific things. She said, oh, this used to be an old homestead. And I don't think I knew at the time really what that meant. I didn't pay a whole, whole lot of attention in history class. <laughs> um, and, then, and then she told us, oh, didn't you know the two llama that are out there? They come with the place, too. Uh, Leroy and Loretta.
1: If Elaine was going to have her country home, she needed to take in the llamas
2: even though I read that purchase sale contract and it had nothing to do with llama in it. But I, at that point I was like, whatever, we'll take them.
1: Not sure of what to do next. Elaine heads to Google.
2: Then we get online and it's like, okay, what are llama? What do they do? And <laughs> it just kind of went down from there. <laughs> like, the... what are llama? Yeah. And these were, um, these were animals that were used to being around uh, horses, donkeys and mules and stuff. Um, and the male was like uber friendly and he would come right up, get in your face and want to know what you're doing. And the female, she'd pin her ears back and act like she was going to hurl a a real sticky loogie at you. Um, and so it was kind of like, a, how do we, you know, do we cut their fur? What's going on here? And so.
1: <laughs> I was curious. I went onto to Google and typed in what are llama. And as I was typing that, the number one suggestion for what people are asking is what are llamas used for? Elaine's question was not alone in the universe. She was just one of the many people on Google at any given moment trying to figure out what the heck do I do with these llama? In doing this research, she stumbled across...
2: They're related to the alpaca, which are much softer, smaller, and way cuter. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just kind of impulsive like that. I guess as soon as spring came around, and the grass started growing and all of our money is into renovations and we don't have a tractor. I think we have about eight acres or so in pasture. I'm like that's gonna get out of hand fast. We said well okay let's just get a couple to help keep the pasture down. So we went and got a couple alpaca, just cute little lawn mowers, and I mean, it just kind of went downhill from there. It was like, wow, these things are really fun to have around and they're adorable and I like being around them. They're very peaceful. And so we started with three.
1: Eventually the alpaca multiplied, not on their own. It was Elaine to blame for that. Her neighbor approached her, someone who also had an alpaca farm. She was getting more alpacas, growing her own herd, but she couldn't fit them all on her property.
2: And so she's like, you know, I'm acquiring this other herd and we're merging and I can't fit all of those animals on my property. And The
1: answer was yes. Elaine would take them.
2: And I think as of Monday, we have 41.
1: In return for housing the alpacas, she could keep their product, the fiber. Elaine didn't need fiber. She wasn't planning on starting a farm business. She wasn't even planning on being a homesteader. She had been chasing dreams for so long, once it hadn't worked out. But now, things were just starting to fall together so nicely. Elaine wasn't going to stand in the way.
2: The second thing that the seller told us when um, she you know, closed and gave us the keys was that this place was an old homestead. And so at the time we took possession, she also gave us a uh, a manila envelope full of some information.
1: Do you remember when we used to use actual manila folders to sort our documents, our real like paper documents? I vaguely remember it.
2: Probably in the late 80s, so pre-internet, the owner at the time had done some correspondence research through the Bureau of Reclamation and a couple other agencies.
1: They tracked it down the old-fashioned way, before Google, before Ancestry.com.
2: She had gotten copies of, of the whole homestead application process that, um, the original homesteader back in 1870 had gone through.
1: This folder was full of more than just paperwork. It was full of a story, someone's story of struggle and success. The Homestead Act was not a handout. Homesteaders had to pay a fee to file an application just to get the chance at making it all work. They then were given a claim that they had to travel out to and survive on. Five years. They actually had to survive off the land for five years before they would be given that land as their own. And a lot of homesteaders failed and had to come home if they made it home at all. But the original homesteader, he had made it a success. He had beaten the odds and spent five years documenting the process, proving he'd done it. Nathaniel Golson was born in 1840. He was the second of seven children. He worked as a farmer alongside his dad and older brother, Daniel. The very year the Homestead Act of 1862 was passed, Daniel, the oldest brother, heads off in the Kennedy wagon train of 1862. They take to, get this, the Oregon Trail. They actually travel the Oregon Trail The Kennedy wagon train started with just 12 wagons, but eventually there was 80 of them with some 200 pioneers aboard. Daniel, one of them. He was the family scout. Like so many people, Daniel must have fallen in love with Walla Walla, Washington. Because just a few years later, we find his younger brother, Nathaniel, joined him. And now there's a wedding. Nathaniel and Louisa Morgan are wed November 17th. 1866. This next part amazes me. I've been doing this show for four years. I've been interviewing what motivated so many different individuals to start homesteading. And over and over again, I hear they get married, they start a family, and they think about where their food comes from and providing for their loved ones. And it drives them to be a homesteader today. It was no different 200 years ago. Because just a few years after he gets married, we find Nathaniel filling out the necessary documents to begin the homesteading process. He would have paid an application fee about $16, which back then could have taken him weeks, maybe even months to save up. Have you ever tried to grow vegetables yourself, maybe raise a few chickens? If you have, you know how hard it can be just to provide your family with a couple meals. Imagine moving onto a new property, totally bare, having to build a home, cultivate the land, raise livestock, grow plants. This was an incredible undertaking. And after five years, Nathaniel had done it he was able to go and prove it he would have brought two witnesses with him with signed affidavits that attested to his homestead efforts he'd pay the rest of the fee six dollars and now he was the proud owner of 164 acres in Walla Walla Washington June 1875, Nathaniel received his homestead certificate. The entire transaction is later recorded at the U.S. General Land Office. It references the application and certificate, and it's signed by President Ulysses S. Grant. Nathaniel's story is a powerful one and one not lost on the lane.
2: My mother was a historian, that's what she did. And she was very much into local history. So when this got handed to me, you know, kind of on the heels of trying to be a mother just like her and that didn't work out, getting this beautiful property that had a lot of potential, that had a lot of history, it was kind of like, you know, it felt like a little bit of a sign, you know. But wow, this place, this place has heritage and has history and you know it's incredibly fascinating and so we kind of just poured over these documents and
1: Elaine sent me some copies of the documents and we'll post them in the blog post right up of this episode if you'd like to see this piece of history just head to our website this is homesteady.com you'll be able to take a look at them she wrote in her email these documents are a true treasure we have them enlarged and on display for farm visitors. With each passing season, my appreciation for the Golsons' courage deepens. These documents represent a man who sold all his possessions, left his family and everything he knew, traveled across the country and into the unknown to stake a claim at the American dream, building a house and a life for his young family with his own hands. It's a legacy we are grateful to keep and share. Elaine says, as I look across the remaining 10 acres that we own with the original barn and the farmhouse, I am humbled. Even with so many modern conveniences that the Golsons never saw in their lifetime, like a tractor and well pump for starters, it takes everything we have to make 10 acres thrive. And he did so much more with so much
0: less.
2: Kind of knowing that, you know, and then finding a personal connection in it with my mom because she would have absolutely loved it. And she did a lot of research like that. I remember her doing a lot of research uh, pre-internet you know writing to various libraries and going to libraries to get the kind of information that I had just been handed like nonchalantly. I really grasped onto that going man this is so cool this place is a homestead you know so I just kind of filed that away going "Man, I'm gonna have to do something with that. But when we got the first couple alpaca and really liked them and then you know I've been kind of a crafty person um, I did some sewing. I taught myself how to crochet back when we were trying to have a baby. And, um, and so I was like, well, you know, their fleeces, you know, were something I could figure that out. And, you know, there might be something here kind of thing. And so when we purchased our first three, they were, they were, like I said, like lawnmowers, just kind of, you know, part of the, the, the country scene, if you will. Um, we really became friends with the people that sold them to us and they were doing an alpaca farm as a business as a, you know, they were selling animals full time and uh, it was kind of like, oh wow, and, and they're doing this, wow, and it's a thing and, you know, they, they have a farm and a house that they're paying for doing this.
1: The wheels have been spinning in Elaine's mind. Now she has more alpacas, she has a product, and she's living on this homestead, one that has been a successful homestead since its very beginning. She felt like she had to give it a shot.
2: I didn't really have any grandiose plans of like I'm, um, you know, I'm going to become the Amazon or the Google of alpaca farms. But it was just like, oh, it just kind of, it just kind of happened. <laughs> so it's like, well, I, I'm going to have all this produce. I need to do something with it. If I'm going to do something with it. I, I, and then sell it, you know, you can't just go selling stuff without reporting it, you know, so it's like, okay, I gotta be, I gotta be an LLC and I gotta set up accounts, And, and it just kind of all happened. I shouldn't admit to this, but it wasn't a very well thought out, like, I'm going to be an alpaca farmer. It just kind of fell into our lap and it sounded good and it was enjoyable. Um, and so we just kind of went with it, and every year we're just kind of tweaking it as we go. This
1: series focuses on businesses that are being run as side hustles, and the lanes is a classic side hustle. By day, she's not a farmer. Oh
2: yeah, yeah, cubicle bureaucrat. Yeah, that's
1: the one you described yourself. I'm a cubicle bureaucrat. But yeah, what? How does it play in with your day job?
2: Um, it's a. It's a complete contrast. As if anybody out there has worked in a cubicle for any length of time, it can be very monotonous and mundane and very first-worldy, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, I don't want to sound ungrateful. There's not a whole lot of flexibility or creativity. So, um, especially in my world of, of contracts, it's it's you know, it's black and white. And you can't be wrong. You can't make mistakes because if you make mistakes, it costs the government money, and then. You got an answer to why you screwed up, and it's just you know it's intense, and it's it it doesn't really light my fire. You know, but it's a good gig, and you know it it, it works one side of my brain. Um, being on the farm works the entire other side, um, so it's it's a nice yin yang kind of thing.
1: The reality for most of us homesteaders is this. We love homesteading, but we can't make much money from it. And so we have to have a career, a job, some business that supports our homesteading habit. For a lot of us, that's some sort of desk job. And those jobs do pay well, but they don't fulfill that greater need. The need to be outside and work with our hands, be creative. That's where homesteading comes in. But just because we can't make a living homesteading doesn't mean we can't make something. And that's why so many of us are attracted to this idea of the homestead side hustle. Elaine started thinking about creative ways that she could make some money from the homestead she enjoyed so much.
2: I knew that their fleece was worth something, um, but I wasn't a fiber artist at the time to know what what the worth was, you know, because I I still hear to this day when I, when I have tour guests come over, Oh, their fleece is so valuable. And I always smile because it's like, yes. Um, but there's many, many steps as I have learned into actually getting the value from it. It's not, it's not a cut it and sell it for, you know, all this money. You can do that, but that is rare. Um,
1: think about alpaca fiber as a diamond, in the rough. One whose worth lies far within the
0: diamond in the rough.
1: You ever heard of the diamond in the rough? A diamond in the rough is worth way less money than an actual diamond that can be placed onto a ring. And that's because when you find a diamond in the rough, a lot of work still has to go into it to turn it into that beautiful little sparkling gem. The diamond has to be cut. Then it has to be polished. By the time it's all said and done, the diamond is much smaller, but it is much more valuable. Alpaca fiber? Well, it's kind of the same thing. You can't just hand a big pile of alpaca hair to somebody and expect to get a lot of money for it. A lot of work needs to go into it.
2: They spend a year growing it. It has to be processed at a mill, you know, about 90 miles away. Six to eight months, depending on the mill. And then I do some value added here by dyeing it.
1: And if you're going to make good money from alpaca fiber, well, you better be ready to wait.
2: So my time to market is near two years.
1: might say alpaca fiber is a diamond in the fluff Eh? see what i did there what have you started to do to speed up income while you're still waiting on like that two-year-old piece of yarn to hit the market
2: diversify it was very clear when you realize two years time to market that's a long time to wait
1: This is a common problem amongst homesteading side businesses. Everything we do by its nature is slow. That's why they call it the slow food movement. It takes a long time to raise a beef. It takes a long time to grow a pumpkin and it takes a long time to get some yarn from our alpacas. So take a time and I walk away. Find a line, find some time. So Elaine needed to figure out what she could do that would make money quicker.
2: We started bringing people out here, um, and just you—you you have to think beyond, beyond the actual um, produce to go. Okay, what else is a value? I started to post a lot of pictures, and I get people that are like, "Oh my God, this is so gorgeous."
1: Hold up, pause the podcast. I want you to head on over to Instagram and search old homestead alpacas. Elaine's Instagram feed is a beautiful one. I want you to look for a specific photo. There's a picture with Elaine and an alpaca in the back of a Volkswagen bus. Leave a comment, say hi from a homesteady listener, or hi, Elaine, we're homesteady, whatever, just say homesteady. And I'm gonna randomly pick one of those comments. We'll give you a free month of the Homesteady Pioneer membership. So go and say hi to Elaine. Just search Old Homestead Alpacas and you're really gonna enjoy following her on Instagram.
2: Oh, people really like this just as much as I do. Well, why don't we start doing tours? Um, tours started to do well.
1: Lane had people to the farm to see the animals, and of course she had a little gift shop that people would go in and get something from, and that did great, but it didn't solve all her problems.
2: They're sporadic, they're seasonal, and so I don't know. We just started to expand, and then this year I did more on farm events. Um, we did a, a an alpaca yoga. <laughs>
1: Alpaca yoga. Breathe in the fresh country air, stretch out on our lush pasture grass, and greet the summer season with a restorative yoga session. Please bring your own mat, a water bottle, and your sense of adventure.
2: That was huge, um, and so that was great.
1: Elaine didn't stop there. She did an entire series.
2: whole farm-to-needle workshop series which has been fantastic. It just, it's just been really well received, um, and I've really enjoyed the heck out of it.
1: I want to remind you, Elaine has a full-time bureaucratic desk job. She's doing all of this on the side and having a blast.
2: And so it was like, okay, well, what else? Well, then when Airbnb pops up, I'm like, well, let's give that a run.
1: Airbnb. I'm sure you've heard of it.
0: Three years ago, Jennifer and her husband began listing their two bedroom Brooklyn apartment on what was then an up and coming website, Airbnb.
2: My husband travels a lot for work. We also have family.
1: People renting out rooms in their houses to
0: total strangers.
2: Airbnb
0: connects hosts who want to share their homes with guests who are looking for a place to stay. Maybe the idea creeps you out.
1: Police have been called to what is normally a quiet street. The house belongs to May Wong. She had rented out her property to an Airbnb user. The next morning, May returned home to find her house had been turned upside down.
0: When Mark and Star King finally entered their home after renting it out for the weekend, they were shocked at what they saw. Pizza boxes stacked outside, a
1: pot pipe near the porch, a patio table was The home damaged. was rented via Airbnb to a man for the weekend last month, damaged by what police call a drug-induced orgy. Barbecue
2: sauce everywhere in... And- chicken meat in my shoes and
1: you think i don't want to let somebody i don't know into my house use it like a hotel that's okay elaine didn't want to do that either but she found a creative way to still make money from it without letting weirdos into her house
2: i'm personally not comfortable having you know folks i don't know personally in Mm -hmm. my home to stay the night yep um and I know for sure my homeowner's insurance is not kosher with that so I wasn't willing to take that risk so you know we did it as a DIY we didn't offer a room in our home it was a hey look at my great farm do you want to bring your car and pitch a tent or sleep in the back of your truck or do you have a pop-up trailer or and I was just like, hey, I can put it out there. They don't charge you anything to have an Airbnb listing. They charge you when you make a, um, a booking, right? So I'm like, I'm just going to throw it out there, see what sticks. You can sleep in my barn. Uh, you can sleep in the pasture, uh, on a cot, on the ground, in a tent, in a trailer, in a camper, in an RV. You can sleep
1: in my Volkswagen bus. Just a note to the listener. If a stranger ever invites you to sleep in their Volkswagen bus, don't do it. <laughs> but if Elaine does, well, the coast is clear.
2: Whatever, whatever floats your boat, because um, we have the space for it.
1: When Elaine calls this DIY, she means it. It was set up your own camping site. She provided a portage on. But that was it.
2: You know, that's kind of, you know, and that kind of limits your window of who's willing to do it, you know, because, (laughs) you know, not everybody wants to go somewhere (laughs) where they can't get a shower and a proper bathroom. And so
1: how much money do you think you could ask someone to come to your farm, set up their own tent, poop in a bucket? What would you pay for that experience? Elaine was shocked.
2: I think I started at like 35 and it went gangbusters and I thought maybe I had undercut myself. And then I think I went up to 50 on the dry camping. A night? Um, yes. The Volkswagen bus was 75 Wow. Yeah.
1: yeah and how yeah. much? Uh,
2: yeah. I've, and I will be straight up here. I have never done dry camping for $50 a night. And I was really impressed at the amount of people that were like, hell yeah, I will totally do that.
1: Okay. I'm going to be straight with you. I love camping. I totally would love to camp on a farm. It would be a fun experience, but I couldn't imagine there was that many other people who would pay fifty dollars a night just to camp, no showers and a porta john. But then I remembered, Elaine's on the west coast. We've all seen those commercials.
0: They think we're all surfers.
1: Or celebrities that we're all into yoga.
2: And then everyone owns a winery.
1: Or skateboard. And that we all drive. Those crazy west coast hippies loved it.
2: Get out here! We'll show you how we
1: roll. You're in the, the West Coast. I was like, I don't know if we could get this. I could. I don't know. Could we do this in Connecticut? Um, is there like way more hippies out there?
2: <laughs> well, now I would also say that I am at an advantage because I am in wine country. We have over a hundred wineries in Walla Walla alone. One hundred. We have people that come from the Seattle area and all over california i mean there are people that come from overseas to come out here because walla walla wine has has made it nationally and internationally so we're in a like a little honey hole here because we've got tourism kind of cornered i mean we've already got the draw so we can kind of command those prices just because other folks have done the hard work at making this place as popular as it is.
1: Plenty of the people listening to this, like where we are, there's a lot of tourism. And I across the street, the my <laughs> alpaca neighbors, they rented out a teepee. Do you alpaca people?
2: <laughs> oh, yes. we. I thought about that. I thought about a teepee and a yurt.
1: Elaine was trying to figure out how many different things could she rent out because she was getting booked solid. I
2: was getting requests for bookings for pretty much the majority of all summer weekends. And I had some just about every weekend somebody was requesting to come. And Holy. I took I took only maybe a third just because it's hard. It was overwhelming. It was overwhelming the amount of people that wanted to do it.
1: I want you to do some Account at Mike math with me, okay? Let's think about this. Elaine was charging $50 for someone to come and set up their own tent. That means all she needed to do was have a Portageon on the property and a location far enough away from her house where people could enjoy camping and the surroundings. That is incredibly low input. $50 per site. If you had a farm big enough where you could host two sites and you only did the weekends like Elaine, two nights friday night and saturday night you'd be making 800 a month now that's not entirely profit you would lose a little bit of money to sharing with airbnb or whatever listing service you used and if you have to rent out a port john but still that's a lot of money you could put back into your homestead every year i raise feeder pigs i have to fence them I have to feed them and water them. Feed deliveries come by then. I have to move a ton of feed back. I have to get these giant pigs loaded up into the trailer. I bring them to the butcher. I have to take frozen meat and bring it back to my place, fill freezers, stack freezers, then organize it and get it out to customers. The hours involved are frightening to think about. And off of each pig, six months of work, I usually profit around $200. You could do this in a weekend, and all you'd have to do is make a listing on Airbnb. And have a spot for people to enjoy the beauty on your property. I think this is a really fantastic way for a lot of you out there to make your homesteads more profitable. When I heard how good it was for Elaine, I couldn't wait to share it. We're going to learn how much money Elaine made last year from all the things on her farm. Yoga, Airbnb, workshops. We're going to find out whether or not she's actually profitable. After a quick break. Instead of our regular ad spot this week, I actually have something, a project that I'm partnered on that I want to tell you about because it just fits so perfectly with this episode. Back in the summer, I was on a fishing expedition with my brother-in-law. We hired a guide to help us out on a new body of water, catch some stripers. This guide, his name is Bernie. He's a real outdoorsman. One of his biggest passions is camping. Him and his good friend Toby started a company producing amazing quality large family tents. These tents are unlike any tent I've ever stayed in. First and foremost, they're built with air trusses. That means there's no tent poles. That confusing hour long process of trying to put up your tent is gone. You take a regular hand pump, one of those air pumps that you would inflate like a basketball with. And in three minutes, you can inflate this entire large family tent. This thing is large. It can fit my family of six, no problem. There's different rooms. There's like a bedroom area and then like a living room. There's even a little space for a port john or a changing room. They're beautiful. They're incredibly rainproof. I spent a night where it was pouring with my family in this tent. We woke up completely dry. They're comfortable. They're an amazing tent. And if you're a family who loves to camp, I can't recommend them enough because we spent a week in one of them and it was, it was wonderful. But I was thinking, man, so many of us with homesteads who are looking for ways to make them more profitable could purchase one of these tents, set them up in the springtime and rent it out for the entire spring and summer. They're not cheap tents. They're premium product. But if we rented these out on our homesteads, we could make our investment back really quickly. And then we'd have an awesome tent to take our family camping in when we go camping. For a very low investment, you could turn a profit on your homestead like Elaine did in no time. If you want to learn more about Wildcat Outdoor Tents, head over to wildcatog, that's for outdoorgear.com, wildcatog.com. You can learn all about the tents. I partnered with these guys. I helped them create their video. I helped them create their website. I helped them create their shop. They're good guys who stand behind an amazing product. And I'm excited to be working with them. If you're interested, I have a really exciting discount for you. If you put in coupon code HOMESTEADY at checkout. If you want to learn more about Wildcat Outdoor Tents, head over to wildcatog.com. So, how much money did Elaine make from renting out campsites on her property, doing workshops, alpaca yoga? Everything combined,
2: about ten thousand. We're between ten and eleven right now, um, and I'm hopeful we might actually surpass that this year.
1: Strict accountant Mike, thumbs up, thumbs down. Inputs: money invested into it versus output: money you put back in your wallet. Accountant Mike. You know, not lifestyle, not how you feel, just hard numbers. is your homestead business profitable?
2: not yet we've done we've done some we've done some major capital investments. We did a huge electrical upgrade, fencing the whole nine. so that's on an amortization schedule, and they were big numbers to start with. Do all the math, which I'm not very good at. Um, we are not in the black yet.
1: So far, two episodes of this series where we interviewed people and asked them that question, we've had the same answer. Nope, not profitable when you look at the expense in all the infrastructure over time. But now, let's back away and look at the big picture. Kick Accountant Mike out of the room. Now it's me sitting there. Um, what you put into it, including money but including effort and time and all that, versus what you get out of it lifestyle-wise. Everything, profit, money, but also your life together, what you're doing, how you feel. Is it a profitable experience?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, can you really put a price on happiness? (laughs) No. Um, I would absolutely say yes. Um, Because business or not, I would be doing a lot of the things I'm already doing now.
1: Do you see yourself jumping eventually out of the cubicle to being a full-time homestead business?
2: I think about that every single day. <laughs> I am actually quite hopeful that maybe within the next two years, I'll be able to go part-time at the cubicle and have more time here. But for sure, yeah, I'm. we're we're headed in that direction. It it has so much potential that, that I need the time during the day to kind of develop the potential, but yeah, for sure.
1: Eventually Elaine will leave a higher paying job at the cubicle to do what she loves for less on her homestead. It might not be the same decision Accountant Mike would make, but that's okay. Elaine has a different perspective.
2: I think folks just have to remember that there's a difference between making money making a life and there are times when i'm like wow i'm selling this hat for 40 dollars, and i've put in you know 20 hours is the juice worth the squeeze i'm like hell yeah it is because i've had a blast doing it i raised this fiber i know the small business that knit this hat for me i grew the flowers that i'm using to dye it it's absolutely worth it you know, I think farming gives you perspective every day and it's a different type of perspective from day to day. Sometimes it's a, you know, they're killing it. Things are going so great. Um, And other days it's a, I can't even get the hose to turn on. Um, I think, yeah, I definitely think, you know, you have to keep in mind. Now I'm not talking about like, well, I'm going to do it even though I'm not making my mortgage and (laughs) You know, I got a credit card company calling me, you know, like, like, I'm not saying go crazy, think things through, but also remember the intrinsic value for things and knowing what, you know, your time is worth and, and how you look back on your life and going, Hey man, that was totally worth it. You know,
1: this is an important lesson for all you budding homestead entrepreneurs. You're going to go at your homestead business all excited. You're gonna put everything you have into it. And at the end of the year, you're not gonna be profitable. Maybe at least not at the beginning. After all that hard work, maybe you'll feel like giving up. Remember what Elaine talked about back in the beginning, the time she spent as a soldier overseas. It taught her to look at hard times differently.
2: Gave me a lot of perspective. Just, it really kind of opens your eyes to the fragility of life and and that there's opportunity even within all the the craziness and the scary um, but there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of growth that you can have if you're kind of open and receptive to it so it kind of just it shaped my perspective on a lot of things I guess that's the best way I can put it some folks don't look at things that way and that's okay but a lot of homesteaders or at least those that I've met they see the value in their efforts not just what they get at the end of the day in their in their pocket the fulfillment that you get from having done that there's a value there that you can't usually put a number on there's 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 definitely a difference there between making money and making a life.
1: The time that Elaine spent overseas gave her a different perspective. Things that maybe she would have found really hard, but they don't seem so hard. She learned how a fragile life can be, and how important it is to take advantage of every day that we have. Maybe we are not soldiers, but that's okay, because it doesn't take fighting in a war to get a different perspective. The time we spend on our homestead, working hard to feed our families, it can make us happier people.
2: No one day is like the next. No one season is like the next. Um, I think, you know, when you have a good day or even like a moderately okay, you'll be surprised at what becomes a good day some days. So it's like, yes, only five of them got out today and they only got spit on twice. <laughs> today was a good day. Um, so true. <laughs> you know i think it i think it changes your perspective as to what is good what's bad what's hard what's difficult and what's easy i think farming and homesteading definitely gives you that perspective
1: i love that that is so true some days you only get spit on twice <laughs>
2: <laughs> and i'm i haven't got spit on yet today so I'm hey, gonna, today's a great day.
1: great day <laughs> Elaine has a very exciting year planned for 2018 on her homestead. She's going to start growing cut flowers, selling bouquets at a local farmer's market. She names this new enterprise Golson's Gardens, after Nathaniel Golson. You can follow Elaine's new endeavor if you search Golson's Gardens in Instagram. And like I mentioned before, if you want to follow Old Homestead Alpacas in Instagram, you won't be disappointed. You'll see some beautiful pictures of alpacas, which, if you remember, when compared to llamas, are
2: much softer, smaller, and way cuter.
1: We want to thank Elaine for taking the time to tell her story, share her journey with us, and we wish her the best in her new endeavors on her old homestead. If you want to see Nathaniel Golson's homestead documents, head on over to thisishomesteady.com. You can see the blog post write-up for this episode, take a look at the pictures, and enjoy reading Alexia's write-up. With every episode, Alexia the Suburban Escapee covers the story, shares all the links that we talked about, and gives her own take on what she's learned from that story. Homesteady Pioneers, we have something special for you. We're going to start asking our guests from the podcast to spend a week in the forum answering your questions. And so Elaine will be in the Homesteady Pioneer Forum for the next week answering any questions you have on Airbnb and farming on alpacas, on why you shouldn't have llamas and instead should get alpacas. Whatever questions you might have for Elaine, you can pick her brain. Go to thisishomestead.com and click on Pioneer's Forum. And if you're not a pioneer yet, but you'd like to join us in the forum, it's five bucks a month. And with that, you get all our bonus content, discounts for lots of gear you might be using already on the homestead, and access to the Pioneer's Only Forum, which is filled with other pioneers, lots of knowledge, And now we'll have our guests in there answering questions. We're going to start putting versions of our podcast on YouTube with some visuals added. So if you're not following us on YouTube, head on over to YouTube and search Homesteading. Allison and Holly is going to be helping us upgrade our podcasts with some visuals. So if you want to listen to our podcasts while seeing pictures of what we're talking about, you'll enjoy that on our YouTube channel. Homesteady is produced by my wife, Kay, and myself. I'm Ost, and I'm Homesteady. If you are too, let us know. Hashtag all your social media posts. I am Homesteady. And until next time, remember, the road is rocky. Make homesteady. This was part three of a 10-part series all on homesteading business. In an upcoming episode in this series, you're going to hear, and I hate to say this, how you can be profitable with the help of goats.
2: This year alone, I've sold right at $3,000 worth
1: of goats. It's true. Goats can make you money. They're making our guest lots of money. But as I always do in every goat episode, I'm going to be sharing a warning as to why, even despite how much money you could make with them, you should never bring them to your home. They become Mischievous. Enjoy that in an upcoming episode of Homesteady.